um, all right, I think we're good. Well, let's do it. Let's just talk about your spiritual path first. Uh, what What are your earliest memories of spiritual things? Oh, gracious. I was born into a circumstance where spiritual things was the air I breathed. My grandfather, who was a retired colonel in the Air Force, uh, had become deeply serious about his faith towards the end of his time in the military and had gotten deeply involved with the Jesus movement of the time. And That's interesting for an Air Force colonel to get involved in the Jesus movement. It, it is, and the older I get and the more I read, the more I realize just how unique that was and he was. You know, it was my background, it's just what I knew. Um, so I didn't think, you know, too much about it growing up, but now looking back, it really was unique. Um, so I was just ensconced in uh, kind of his world. He had gotten involved in the home church movement that kind of was running parallel with and an offshoot of a lot of what was happening in the Jesus movement. So um, he had five boys, uh, my dad being one of those, of course, and my dad, along with his brothers, were also really involved in what my grandpa was doing. So my spiritual journey began at birth, and you know, much of these uh, subsequent 40, almost 41 years have been me trying to figure out what it all means. Uh, <laughs> so what kind of churches were those? What, I mean, we all were involved in... Yeah, it was, um, it, it's, hard to, it, it's hard to explain because a lot of folks, when they think of home church, they think of um, a place that is not physically one's home. This, these met in folks' homes. Um, you know, in my teens, I soon found my way gravitating into um, the popular non-denominational megachurch light type of churches, and that is a lot of... Um, my formation as well, and uh, transferred into a private Christian school to play soccer when I was a sophomore in high school. And so that school and that environment um, had had an effect on me as well. Um, and uh, so, again, as I was saying a minute ago, the, my life has really been, and particularly these last 15 years, and a lot of my reading, I think, is informed in ways that I'm not even aware of, uh, of me trying to figure out who am I? What 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 from my background uh, do I celebrate and bless? What from it do I give thanks to those who love me and say this is not the way that I necessarily see it all anymore? Um, and reading has been for me a significant part of um, trying to figure all that out. We're going to jump off the cliff into reading here in a minute. I, my experience with the Jesus movement, looking back, was... Theologically, it was fundamentalism with a different wrapper on it. I mean, it really was focused on heaven and hell and the rapture, and it's just you had better music and longer hair and cooler, you know, uh, a little more, um, I don't know, there was a little more openness to it, but it, at its core, it was still very literal, you know, interpretation of Scripture, those kind of things. Was that sort of your experience? Yeah, I, th I mean, it certainly it was it was a more fundamentalist theology than than what I now hold. Uh, you know, one of the things that I think that from you know I wasn't there myself. I'm reading about it and looking back on it. Uh, by the time I came along, I didn't. I never heard the words the Jesus movement. It was me then realizing that this is what this came out of. 
But my sense is that along with everything you just said, which I would agree with, there would also seem to be, and you can affirm for me if this is true or not, but there was, meanwhile, an ethos involved in the movement at large that was really trying to elevate um, spiritual virtues such as love and, and peace and togetherness and um, so I, I think that there were some healthy impulses from that, and, and I do think I was marked by a lot of that. You know, if you come to the church that I pastor, uh, Boulevard Baptist Church, my benediction every week is, and the fruit of the Spirit is, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And uh, while there are some things about the context that I come out of, you know, that, that are not part and parcel of um, my theological toolkit anymore. Uh, attributes such as those very much are. And I, I learned those from people like my grandpa. You know, but I do think that you know, a lot of what the Jesus movement was was fundamentalist and a different rapper. You know, I still consider myself very theologically orthodox. You know, I say the Apostles' Creed, I don't cross my fingers behind my back. But I also don't consider myself fundamentalist. You know, I think those are two very different things. Well, having come through it, I mean, and I'm... I'm... I have a, admitted a little bit of cynicism about it. I watched it more from what you're talking about, people who had been involved in the civil rights movement and other things that had added Jesus to their, you know, their resume there. Um, in less than a decade, it had been co-opted into, yeah. it is corrupt and is, is out of, you know, keel as is, is, is the church they broke away from. It was as, as if it, Luther had decided, you know, Ten years later, nah, I think I do want to go back to the, you know, yeah, yeah. it's a really odd. I think from what I've read, that seems like a pretty, pretty solid and fair reading. Um, and to be I, fair, this is a generalization, but and yeah. all it is. But and to be fair, the the refusal of those who did have some maturity to embrace the, the youth and the zeal and all and help them, you know, guide that. Of course, we've seen the same thing. And again, we're going to not chase this too far. Seen the same thing with the idea of the megachurch kind of thing. They started as something very different. And then, uh, you know, there have been books written about it, obviously, yeah, that yeah. You, you behave one way as a startup, you behave another way as when you become a major corporation. But let's get back to books. Um, you talk a little bit of this about this in your book, but tell people how you went from loving books to not loving books and for more than a decade. Yeah, that's one of the most curious parts of my own autobiography. And I don't mean the, the book we're talking about in question. I mean just generally speaking because when folks meet me, I'm, you know, it's not long before I'm talking about books because I just love to read. But there were about 10 years of just darkness and silence on the reading front for me. I, when did you learn to read? You say, well, when did you learn to read? Do you remember? Well, I, I don't remember the exact age, but I know that by first grade, it had become something that I was taking very seriously, going to the library, you know, thinking about what books haven't I read, what do I need to read. And so once I had begun, I was pretty ravenous. Um, but then sixth grade came, and in the book, I tell about this moment that was really pivotal in my life journey, not just books, but because of how important books are for my understanding of things for, for my whole story. Um, I was in sixth grade in my language arts class and the teacher had called me up front to do something. And as I recall it, I was having to write vocabulary words up on the board as she was reading them out. And I don't remember what the drill was or why I was even doing it. But she called a word out and suddenly I thought of a play on that word. And so I said something 
that I don't even remember what the joke was. I just I remember it was really silly, like really shallow, really low hanging fruit. But it got this just raucous response. Uh, the kids were in stitches, and the euphoria that came over me was like, wow, I, I don't get this kind of response from talking about the Nancy Drew books that I've just finished. You know, I, the, Nobody seems to be that interested when I tell them about how much I love C.S. Lewis and Narnia. <laughs> this, is, this is the ticket to popularity. And obviously in that moment, it didn't all crystallize and I didn't think about it that way, but I can trace back the trajectory of the next 10 years of my life to that moment because from there forward, I stopped caring about school in the sense that it had been theretofore really important to me to make good grades, to learn. I enjoyed it. But then for the next 10 years, I was kind of driven by, um, I see now in retrospect, a, a desire to just court attention and popularity, and this was the way to do it. And it was not until um, my early 20s that I really kind of stumbled back into reading. And how, did you, how, how did you stumble back into it? That's... Well, it's, it's interesting because it's almost like I put the cart before the horse. I was living in Atlanta, and I'd moved down there on a whim, didn't know anyone, um, had not yet even found a job. Um, television can only entertain you for so long. And I had a lot of books that had been purchased for me by my parents, you know, through high school and, and, and college um, that I read at, had not fully read, had just kind of done the bare minimum. But I still had these books. And, um, and so they're on the shelf and I'm kind of picking at them. But I also, in that time, started trying to write. And um, I started really getting into trying to write fiction which kind of inspired me to become a little bit more serious about reading some of these books. And suddenly now that nobody was assigning them to me, I just, I fell in love with them. And concurrently, and like I say, almost um, more causative than correlative, my writing is what had led to my reading. But then that then further affirmed for me that I wanted to be a writer. So I was really falling in love with both things in some senses at the same time. It, probably fairer to say that I was falling back in love with, with, with reading. you remember what you were reading then? What just got you back into the groove? Well, you know, I was doing really simple things then, you know. I mean, I was, so it's at that point that I read, you know, Catcher in the Rye cover to cover and went and reread, because I really had, I think, read cover to cover To Kill a Mockingbird at that point. Um, uh, read a separate piece at that point. Um, but then I was also reading like John Grisham and Nicholas Sparks and some of these books that I don't even know how I accumulated because those weren't assigned books, but I just, I had them. And, um, those were the things that, you know, had really appealed to me probably more than, you know, Catcher in the Rye and, 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 uh, a separate piece did because I, I was working my way back up to really being able to appreciate and understand those things. So, you know, I find that folks, particularly bookish folks, you know, and those are my people. I mean, I, I just wrote a book on books. I, right. I love talking to literature lovers, but there can be a tendency to kind of turn our nose up at, at, at you know, just kind of genre fiction. And, and I don't do that. You know, I, I, I owe my love for reading in some senses to genre fiction. Um, I encourage folks to not only stay in genre fiction, because I really do think that there's more riches, you know, in, in reading literary fiction and kind of branching out into, you know, creative nonfiction and that kind of stuff. But 
there's a place for genre fiction. Well, also there are there are writers that have been tagged that that transcend that in their writing too. I mean, people who've been thrown into. The, it, it, did at any point there you begin to make a connection between your spiritual life and your reading? How it was? No, I didn't. It, that was that was way down the road. Okay. Um, and and perhaps to anticipate where we might go in this, but I had actually started working as a minister. Um, and knew I loved to read, but had still not connected the dots on on really thinking that my reading was directly informing how I went about being a minister, and by extension, how I as a person of faith was being formed by what I was reading. Um, it was only once I had really begun to grapple with, not only do I want to be reading every now and again in my office, um, but I believe that there's value to what I'm doing as a minister in my reading, that I really began to think about the ways that, that reading had been formative for me as a person of faith. And I think it's important to name here, and this might call us back to something we were just saying about um, some of the things that did and did not adhere in the Jesus movement. Um, when I say that reading is formative for faith, some folks hear that and think we're just talking about beliefs or, you know, helps kind of further enrich ideas. And obviously it does that. But reading also, I think, helps us better understand the world in which we live and better understand the importance of engagement in the world. And one of the things, you know, that I was going to say in that bit we were talking about with the Jesus movement that I do think was lost, certainly for me by the time I came along, was there was no premium placed on doing justice in the world, on, on actually being involved in trying to make the world a better place. By the time I came along, um, at least the, the milieu that I was a part of, it was just all about right belief. And it was really all about um, beliefs in the afterlife and, and getting getting the right beliefs in place so as to secure the afterlife. But then there was nothing that really connected any of that to the here and now. And similarly, when I talk about how reading is formational for, for our faith as, as, as persons of faith, I don't just mean it helps us have better ideas. You know, it, it, it actually does a lot more than that. It helps us understand the complexity of the world and how, how we ought to be involved. We're going to talk some more about that in a minute. And the other thing that you're talking about, that, that since I'm a generation and a half ahead of you, that the one thing that was a mark of almost any of the either the communes and the Jesus bookshelves were packed. People were reading. Mm -hmm. I mean, you, that was a reading. If you had gone through just public school education, then you you were not given a buy on reading, and reading was required, and everybody developed a, and that thirst for knowledge and wanting to whether it was to argue or whatever else to have these bases of knowledge and reading. We're going to touch on this and then come back to it. How did you get to the place where you felt like you needed to write a book called The Pastor's Bookshelf? Well, that's a perfect follow-up question to what we were just saying, because after I began to think about how reading was really informing the way I went about being a minister, I was talking to seasoned ministers about kind of their own experience with, with reading and ministry. And one of the things that I came to quickly realize was that many, if not most, of the people I was talking to weren't reading. But what was curious about that was that my guild, ministers, almost to a, a, a person, claimed to love to read. 
And I don't think that's insincere. You know, now I know that there are, you know, a small wing of the church where we're reading and learning. And, you know, there's no real premium placed on that. But that's, you know, that's really small. Mm-hmm. Um, on a whole, pastors love to read and, and, and care about learning. I, I think that's true. Um, but be that as it may, when I talk to seasoned ministers, a lot of them who purported to like to read, I then found weren't really reading. And I was troubled by that because I knew they weren't lying to me. I knew that there was something else. And then in conversation with, you know, a seasoned minister at one point, he, he said something that stuck with me. He'd said, yeah, I love to read. I just don't ever have the time for that luxury. And I thought, that's it. There's the thing. We think of reading as a luxury. And that then explained why I would feel as a minister who was actively reading and thinking about that as part of my call, why I would still feel in some sense guilty uh, or as if I was doing something I wasn't supposed to be doing when I'd sit in my office and, and just read a novel for an hour. And so the book really then was was born out of that realization, which is that this is this is absurd. You know, obviously we're not called as ministers to just come into our offices and read all day, but there is an important place for reading in the vocation of ministry. And so part of what my book tries to do is get pastors to reframe our understanding of reading from considering it a luxury to instead beginning to think of it as a vocational responsibility. Well, one of the things, and I hadn't thought about it really, I don't think, at least in, in, in any, when I was reading your book, I was thinking most of the people you're talking about here have advanced degrees and having been through the seminary systems myself, two of them, no one ever encouraged reading. It was never on the agendas anywhere. It was never, I mean, it, it, I mean, there are a lot of things, but you would think any intellectual inquiry would include some sort of, you know, the Patrick's bookshelf. They would say, look, here are things, it just as the English is the leading frank of the world because of Shakespeare and the King James Bible, you would think, here are books you probably should read to have a better understanding of what you're doing, you know, but it's just not even on the agenda anywhere. Well, here's hoping the pastor's bookshelf will start getting uh, Get into the, the syllabi and, 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 on, and, and on the agenda for, for seminaries and pastoral formation. But I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think one of the reasons for that is that we tend to think of reading as purely informational. When studies... Uh, show that reading is far more formational than it is informational. So if there are two core theses to my book, we've just named them. The first is that reading is more formational than informational, and that beyond that, then, particularly for pastors, reading should not be seen as a luxury, but as a vocational responsibility. Now, that being said, this book, while it's called The Pastor's Bookshelf, two-thirds of the book, you know, have nothing to do with ministry. It's really just about the importance of reading and how it's formational. So I do think this is a book for more people than just pastors, but specifically speaking that that second thesis is directed at pastors that um, that is not just a luxury, it, it is a vocational responsibility. I want to try to hit on some of those. I kind of want to do a speed round here before we do that, just talk about reading in general. Yeah. I, I don't remember what it was and I made a mark, but I, I couldn't find what I wanted to ask you, but I couldn't help but think, have you read Hans Ruckmacher's book, Art Needs No Justification? No, I'm not. It's the it's a very small little, almost a pamphlet-like book, but it it was in response to, 
Um, how should great minds and great people of great faith express themselves? So should it only be in matters of faith, you know, and great art is great art. I, I, I was seeing a connection between an appreciation for reading and an appreciation for art, and I think it's very real. I think I think it is too. I think people who don't read don't appreciate art very much. I mean, it's very it's hard. It's more difficult to. Well, I think it. I think that's that's probably right because I think that that one of the things about reading is, along with encountering great stories and and great ideas, we're also developing language and categories for both expressing and comprehending things. And, you know, particularly as people of faith, if if we believe that that we are finite beings ultimately trying to, you know, speak about and be in relationship with something that is so much greater than us and ergo mysterious in so many ways, the best we can do is have lots of really great poetic ways of trying to explain the otherwise ineffable. And deepening our language and our familiarity with all kinds of different images and metaphors and things like that can only expand us. And thus, yes, yeah, somebody that's that's done a whole lot of reading is more apt to probably be able to not just look at a piece of art and just appreciate it from just a purely aesthetic, you know, receptive um, standpoint, but, but have kind of more, more of a more categories for being able to then understand what it is about that that, um, that that is so striking to him or her as they take in the piece of art. More textures. So true of music, anything. Right. Yeah, I was thinking. And what you just mentioned, we'll get back to. Like, I'm going to get to the pastor's thing in a minute. But um, whether you're preaching at Bob Jones or you're preaching at, uh, you know, the Metropolitan Community Church, you are looking for ways to teach like Jesus taught. You're thinking, looking for illustrations and parables. And I mean, you and I have seen, there's a lot of really terrible, terrible pastoral illustration books out there that have been sold for years. Yeah. But that that's only going to come from one spot. I mean, you're not going to be inspired. And it's either going to be from great literature or from bad literature, because very few of those are personal. You, you can only, as much as you have to preach, you can only have so many personal illustrations that are, that are going to. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, and Fred Craddock, the you know the acclaimed uh, um, preacher, he refers to this as the reservoir, and that you're filling up the reservoir. And significantly, I think that metaphor is so useful because as as preachers, we can't read in an instrumental way. You know, those books where it's like the great anecdotes and illustrations, I mean, they have their place, and, and I don't want to ultimately devalue Well, they're them. like joke books to comedians. Yeah, yeah, well, right. And and also, you know, to me, the, the, the reason that Craddock's metaphor of the reservoir is so apt and so important is just because uh, a quote or a reference or an allusion um, happens to be about the same topic you're preaching on, it doesn't mean that it's the right fit for exactly what you were saying in that moment. You know, Mark Twain famously said, uh, there's all the difference in the world between lightning and the lightning bug, you know, and there's all the difference in the world between a quote that sort of fits, but is just like your way of wanting to say that you've read, you know, uh, Dostoevsky or mm -hmm. Hemingway or whomever, um, and the quote where it's the exact right Dostoevsky quote right. that brings out the texture of all the rest of the sermon. And you can't do that by trying to shoehorn it in 
you know, it, it has to be that you're working on the sermon. All of a sudden, that reservoir that you've been building up, it's there. You didn't even know it was there, you know, and then there it comes to you unbidden and and it's just the right one. And so you either have that in the reservoir or you don't. And it's one of the reasons that I say <clears throat> that we can't read in instrumental fashion. It, it has to be, we read by faith, not by sight. We just know that we're being formed by these things and that when suddenly the right time comes to be able to to implement something from this, that, 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 it, that it will be there. Well, even the reservoir of, of an understanding of Scripture, I mean, I mean, if I had a quarter for every sermon I've had where they've taken a scriptural passage and done what you just talked yeah. about, she could, and look, I, I'm not sitting here in some sort of grand judgment because I, I know it's a difficult thing, and you'll get a Saturday night and you think, I've got to figure something out here, you know, so you, I know the Scripture and I know what I want to say with it, whether it has anything to do with it or not. Sure. And, you know, sometimes good can come out of that because, again, that's, alliteration you're using scripture as literature to tell a story rather than trying to contextualize it and but sometimes you get caught in that no man's land to try and do both and well that and so that's <laughs> the classic you know that 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 is the textbook definition of eisegesis right you know, um and 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 yes that 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 unfortunately does happen too often and this is why for me i think starting with the biblical text and now i'm talking about preaching specifically not not starting with a verse, but starting with the biblical text, and then praying over and determining where a pastor feels he or she is being led in the sermon writing process, but then not coming at it along with that by saying, but I, you know, I've read this really great quote right. from, you know, this great, you know, uh, Elizabeth Strout novel, and, you know, it's a Pulitzer winner, and that's going to sound really good if I can drop from her Pulitzer Prize winning novel in there. <laughs> and here, this is this really meaningful quote, so now how am I going to build the rest of this around right. That? Right. that? That It's so transparent. You know, it doesn't work. And um, well, the, the sad thing is, no, it does work sometimes. Well, it ought not to work. No, but I'm, you know what I'm saying, though, but it I, does work sometimes. Yeah, it, it does. You can build a pretty grand uh, speech around something like that. You, you, know? you can, and I think this is where it gets down to, you know, at the end of the day, I really believe this Christian story I'm standing up proclaiming. Right, right. You know, I, I, I really do. And so for me, the sermon's not a success if, it, if, if I pulled off something where the real takeaway was, man, I got to go read that, that novel. Right. Um, because that quote is just really great. What was that quote he said? Now, let me, let me clarify. I am thrilled when somebody comes up and says, you know, after that sermon, you know, I went and, and checked out from the library this book or, or went on Amazon. Got it. I love that. One, it means, you know, somebody's listening. Right. But two, that is significant. But for me, it always has to be in service of, you know, the, the greater gospel point that I'm trying to make. Um, and if it's, been built around from start the the literary reference and that's the thing that is the real takeaway then i don't think i've done what i've set out to do like i said uh started into it and kind of stumbled but i'm, I'm going to kind of speed around through uh the research that has demonstrated that reading for pleasure is linked to increased empathy social cohesion knowledge of other cultures cultural capital the ability to regulate moods and relax um Helps you connect with other people. Um, the idea that uh, you know classic reading has a, an effect on neuroscience in ways they're just beginning to find out. And they had people read various novels and measure brain activity. It's been shown to slow the process of Alzheimer's. 
uh, improve focus, uh, improve emotional intelligence, boost creativity. A Yale study found that those who read long-form literature at least 30 minutes a day actually live longer, two years longer than those who don't. I know you've said all these things, but people don't know it. Um, I see it as many of the same people that I see in the gym every day. I hope their reading habits are similar because they do find, I know a lot of people who, for whatever reason, have decided to get healthy. And once they, it's like any other habit, once they, they, they can't imagine not doing it. You know, my mother's in her late 80s and she can't imagine not going to the YMCA three days a week and working out. And, you know, so it's one of those things that you build those in. Uh, it, one of the lines I came across from Stanford study that um, not only talked about um, audiobooks and print books having the same impact on the brain, which I thought was interesting, opening blood pathways and stuff, but it talked about it, it, reading increases our tolerance for uncertainty, and they did some, and I think that's where, you know, I know in my deconstruction, that addiction people have to certainty mm -hmm. is if you only read a very narrow, you know, place, then you miss that, but our schools, seem intent on sacrificing reading to the altar of STEM, even though those same studies have found that reading understanding improves math abilities. So the evidence is pretty solid, but let's pull it back to your practical, to your, to your, your audience. One of the things you mentioned early on and, and, and kind of echoed through the book is, you know, some of your pastor, fellow pastors don't see it as practical. Whereas, you know, classical roots in faith, uh, at least in, in Western, you know, civilization has deep dives in the classics. You, you couldn't have gone to any church school having read all the classics, you know, 100 years ago at all. Liberal arts education was, you know, science, math, language, all that. Uh, you, but you talk a lot of, to a lot of pastors. Any idea why they don't see it as practical or why there's been such a shift in education away from reading? That's a huge question. It, it is, and I'm going to take that last question itself. I yeah. think there, that's two, there's two questions in it. Um, I think that one of the reasons that we as pastors don't tend to think of reading as practical goes back to what we were saying earlier about equating practical with being informative and immediately implementable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, if a pastor were able to show how his or her reading immediately applied to XYZ sphere of their ministry, they would then feel more, um, more, more like they've been given the green light to, to read. So I think that we think of practical only in the sense of what can be instrumentalized right now. And we think of reading then from that informational standpoint because that's the only thing that can be instrumentalized you know it's like okay well here's this great thing i've learned here's this stat or here's this quote or here's this thing that i can now put in right here and then it's practical but one of the things that i'm really arguing for in this book is to think about reading from this formational standpoint versus informational where that is qualitative not quantitative and so it's not practical in the sense of what i do right now in my reading I'm going to immediately be able to say, here's how I'm going to apply it. We keep building up the reservoir. We keep reading with the assumption that it will have practical applications, but not in the moment and never the way that we think that it's going to be. You know, seldom if ever have I ended up 
having reason to use something that I've read for the exact reason that I thought in reading it or marking in the book, I might someday actually use it. You know, I can't tell you how many times I've been on a pastoral care visit where something that I read 10 years ago that never in a million years would I have thought would have come up in a pastoral care visit suddenly was the thing that made sense in that moment. You know, same with preaching, you know, same with, you know, leadership, you know, whether with staff or in any other sphere of, of being a leader. And on that, people who have have committed to Bible reading will say, well, these scriptures just come out of nowhere somewhere as if it's the only thing that could come out of nowhere. Whereas, if, you know, if you have a deeper reservoir and the same things you're doing, you think, wow, when I read that book, I didn't think it had anything to do with this, but suddenly my friend's going through this and this will help me be a better friend. Yeah, because when, when we're reading, we're, we're learning so much about the human condition and about creation and... You know, all of these things can have bearing in ways we know not how when, when, when we're reading it. So I think that is why, um, why ministers often don't find it practical. Because again, I think most ministers do like to read and would like to feel as if their congregations were encouraging them to read. It's we have such a, a, a kind of utilitarian understanding of what church work and ministry is supposed to be about such a transactional type of thing that it disincentivizes, in fact, discourages pastors from reading because it's not an exaggeration to say for most pastors, and my book again was born out of this, having experienced it myself, if suddenly we pull out a book that's a novel and sit in our office and read it for a while, there's a sense that it's a dereliction of duty. Uh, sense of, I hope nobody comes and pops into my office because then they're going to think I'm not working. Right. Well, we are. Um, and that, I think, really does apply outside of just ministry, too. My book specifically maps onto how this applies in, in ministry, but I think this is true of any vocation because I really do think that reading doesn't just enrich us as pastors, it enriches us as human beings. And it's a steeper path for people who don't come into it as a reader and, and, and again, I want to be fair here because I was there years ago and I know pastors still that have to cut the grass in the cemetery and, and do all the visits and do the budget. And I mean, they're, they're one-man shops that their hours are pretty precious. But again, there's always hours to do it if you can find about. But again, I want to be fair to those guys that are really are kind of walking the tightrope doing nine jobs. I want to be more than fair to them uh, because that is a reality. And... Uh, in the book, I say several different times, I mean, the ministry is notoriously a vocation to where there are little to no margins. Um, and so in the book, one of the other kind of big jumps I make after talking about not thinking of it as um, a luxury, but thinking of reading as a vocational responsibility is then to say, okay, well, then how are we going to do that? And to start encouraging pastors to think of an hour spent reading in the office, not as time spent reading, and certainly not as sermon prep, because the type of reading we're talking about isn't directly applicable for this week's sermon, but to start thinking of that as a pastoral visit. Um, uh, Machiavelli, who I don't typically invoke as uh, the person we should follow. Uh, and and there are good reasons for that. Yeah, but, but one of the things striking about Machiavelli was he would, he would get dressed up before he would go to read any of the classics. And so because he felt like he was beholding 
uh, different geniuses and felt like they deserved that respect. And one of the reasons I think that's a really interesting thing is what it suggests is that he realized he was in dialogue with another another person, even though that person in most cases, you know, was no longer living. And so just like we as pastors, when we go into a pastoral visit, no, we're going in for an exchange where it's not like, at least pray God, I hope it's not like, we go in thinking, all right, well, here we are, the wizened ones that are going to dispense all these pearls of wisdom and knowledge. Instead, we go in knowing that we've been called in to have, you know, conversation with, uh, with, with the person with whom we're speaking knowing that we both are going to be enriched by this this dialogue. Um, in that same way, I think that when we carve out an hour as ministers each day on, on our calendar, and the only way we can do that is if we really believe that this is you know a, a, a vocational responsibility, but if so, then we will make time for it in the same way that we make time for you know going on a hospital visit, uh, for, for doing any number of the things that, that we have to do in a given day. But so you carve out this one hour, understanding that in reading, we are being shaped by it. And moreover, if we're reading with a pencil in hand and making notations, and we're speaking back. And the sum result is we will be shaped by and enriched by that conversation with that reading dialogue partner that will then inform the person we take into the flesh and blood pastoral visits, but also into the pulpit and into any type of staff meeting things that we're doing, any vision casting, any committee meetings, all the things that we do as, as ministers, I really think will be aided by those pastoral visits with, uh, with, with the writers of the books we're reading. And it's, it's unfortunate that the same people who might feel like, I don't want somebody to walk in when I'm reading a novel, would not have that same reaction if they're doing a correspondence Tom Wright course on the Galatians or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. They, they would see that as, because that's the thing I've been disappointed with over the years is I walk into a typical pastor's study and it's full of commentaries and other biblical study books, either that or those, and I, I'm not going to chase this too far because you know how I feel about Austin. I've talked about this before. The cult of leadership where they've basically taken Peter Ducker books and put Bible verses to them. And that's led to some sad church structures in many places I've witnessed. And actually, I had a, a nice, loud argument with John Maxwell in the mid-90s at uh, Willow Creek's leadership, first leadership conference about his speech that day was how lonely it is at the top. And I said, have you been to the bottom? You know, that's, that's the leadership books missing there, you know. But that, I don't see, you know, um, I, I know a good example of, of, of um, you know, even, even in Christian education and stuff, a lot of the offices I've walked into, academics, it's still... But I remember when um, uh, Lee Royce, I was former president of Anderson College, Anderson University, came here, and we met somewhere and became fast friends. I went to, I went to his office. There were novels. There were books on nature. There, you could, the mind was inquisitive, you know. But pastors, for some reason, you don't. If you walk in, I guess they're worried people walk in and see this whole shelf of novels, and think that they're. Why do you have shelves of novels? You're, there's there's an education aspect among the congregation to, to that idea, and really the the, the whole instinct of the founding of most of the Ivy League schools was that education blunts the worst instincts of man, and that the key to that is reading. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a well-rounded liberal arts education uh, is, is so formative, again, in ways that you can't chart, <laughs> but, but that come through in, in, in all kinds of uh, intangible but, but significant ways. And 
you, you use the word inquisitive, and I think that's one of the key parts. I, I think that we ought to be curious. As human beings, we ought to be curious. You know, as pastors, certainly we ought to be curious. We ought to have a, a desire to to behold and experience and 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 know more. And I don't mean know in the sense of appropriate it to where, you know, we've got a full handle on that. And now we can speak on any number of things. Though being broad is is, is significant, but but just wonder. You know that look how remarkably complicated creation is and and why would we not want to read as widely and as broadly as possible to just try to just encounter and behold so many different things and so one i think that there are plenty of times when one would go into a church context and there aren't even the commentaries and other books on the wall which you know so let's give credit to the fact that there's at least that. But I do think there's an important next step. And and, and I, I think that the reason that there aren't more novels and more works of nonfiction that aren't just commentaries and biblical studies is that we as pastors have not really been trained or formed or taught to think uh, of our role as ministers as outside of that context, outside of those types of books. You look around my shelves, there are plenty of those, you know, and there are plenty more in the church library. Um, but yet, you look on my shelf, there are plenty more novels and works of, I mean, you name the nonfiction genre, everyone under the sun, there's poetry, there's all the above, because they all have bearing on what we bring to the role of, of minister. But unfortunately, the danger in, in really the Orthodox tradition is find your truth within your sort of cloistered group of books and things. That just, the, the, the idea that truth is, is, is everywhere when you find it, you know. Uh, you mentioned it, you know, your benediction every, every, every week, the fruit of the Spirit. You will find those same listings in Hindu writings and then you know, Jewish writings and then Buddhist writings. I mean, it, there's a reason they're everywhere, you know, and the idea to close it down because, well, there's not a Bible verse that fits this. Um, well, C.S. Lewis made that point better than anybody, you know. Now, what, not, we're in 2022, 75, 80 years ago, you know. Uh, go read, you know, uh, God in the Dock, his collection of essays, and, you know, no greater, you know, orthodox authority than C.S. Lewis to speak on, you know, the very thing you're talking about. So for G.K. Chesterton. Oh, well, you know, and I mean, he pays... <laughs> and he borrowed well, a lot of... Well, I was going to say, I mean, he pays homage, you know, to... to I know, he does, he does. And, he and says it's his spiritual father, yeah, well, so he gives him credit. So. You know, and so if, if Lewis is my spiritual father, uh, then, then Chesterton is a you know, spiritual grandfather. Yeah. I mean, I, I adore both of them, you know, in ways that we don't have long enough on this podcast to talk about. Well, one of the things you mentioned, and, and I liked the approach, was you try to... You mentioned one of your friends to think about it is a filter on a camera, being able to look at something with different lens. Uh, I know I, I recently interviewed somebody that was not of the Christian tradition, and I really admired as a scholar, a scholar that their approach was, well, yeah, I understand people think that way because that's their lens, and I accept that, and I understand that, and that doesn't bother me, and I don't have to argue with, you know. Yeah. We've kind of, but the idea that having a different lens, um, because uh, it's, in recent years, the divisions have become even more. You touched on this a little bit. I don't want to talk about politics too much, but sadly, 
the other books you do often see are from right wing slanted, you know, political kind of things. And I don't think, I do think there are progressives that are guilty, but I don't think they're as guilty. I really don't see that as much on the progressive side, but maybe I'm blind to it. Um, but even, even in the media, outside of the editorial pages, New York Times, Washington Post, and NPR probably have the most balanced coverage, along with Reuters and maybe the BBC. And there is no other side to that. So I, I hear people getting caught up in things that, uh, I don't remember who said this, but somebody said that, you know, we're so addicted to distraction that yeah. we can't we can't break out of that addiction. We need to go to a twelve step group for distraction. Oh my god. Distracting gracious. ourselves yeah. to death to to to, yeah, to, to paraphrase yeah, postman, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Which amusing ourselves to death. Yeah. Go reread that book and it's that just, book holds up. Nineteen eighty five is when he wrote that. Yeah. And you want to talk about prescient. I mean the yeah. guy and he changed it, a few words here and there from internet, from television to internet. The to, fact he wrote that pre internet it's 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 mind-blowing i mean if you're listening to this podcast i would love for you to read the pastor's bookshelf go read amusing ourselves to death you know I, that's 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 a book it is a great um, book how do you think literature helps transcend these bias approaches to the world though i mean how does that help you well i i think it certainly is helpful you know i i, I do think the spirit with which we read is where we have to start that conversation um, because a lot of times, particularly in the culture, the echo chambers that we have now, there's a lot of kind of um, social capital that one can get for him or herself by looking like he or she is informed and weighing in on things in a way that didn't used to be before the Internet. Because it used to be that if you wanted to kind of identify as an informed person, you had to go read the newspaper you didn't get a spoon-fed uh, version of whatever the event was. You kind of then had to analyze and synthesize it. And then beyond that, you then had to find a dinner party or a group or somebody that also wanted to talk about these things. We sat around in college and seminary sometimes in the cafeteria all day debating issues and just trading off to well, say, you and, take this version, I'll take that side. And and we'll... But you'd found a group that wanted to do that right. is the point. You know, I mean, that wasn't just, you had to kind of seek that out. But there were a lot um, of readers then. I mean, there were more readers Yeah, then. that's probably true. Um now you just have to kind of log on and you know get onto you know your preferred social media platform and you can you know just share an article that you happen to like the headline of but you know if it was a New York Times article or if it was a Wall Street Journal article or wherever then you look like you know you were you know a really deeply read well-informed person you may or may not be but it's just it, it, it sure the, the kind of context in which this stuff is done has changed but so that that's a digression um, to say that now we are kind of incentivized to to at least signal toward being read, and then that can be something that then does uh, what's a, a virtue and that causes them to actually begin reading some more. Um, but then you know any virtue can quickly be turned into a vice if we're not careful that we're not reading with the right spirit, where all we're then doing is going to read to further kind of bolster and uphold the arguments that we and kind of the team that we identify with are levying against the others. And you see that happening all the time. If we read with the right spirit, you know, if we read with a curious and open spirit to where it doesn't mean we come in, you know, as these neutral, there's no such thing as, as a neutral, you know, objective eye in the sky uh, for we as human beings to, to take. That's a myth. That's a lie. We all have a perspective. But it doesn't mean that we can't go in open to being either persuaded or at least to acknowledge some nuance in something that might kind of change our view on and warm us up towards uh, something. I guess uh, that leads to what you read because it really, if 
if you're broadly read, even if your spirit is a little off, you're going to run into things that, that nothing new under the sun, you know. I mean, you start reading, if you read enough, you're going to realize, wow, all the things we're talking about are, are you know, the, I, I thought about recently it could happen here, a novel written in the 30s. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it was written in, in four years ago, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's and right. people think, wow, that people have been talking about and thinking about these things a long time, yeah. and we forget that because there's no social media, yeah, <laughs> no, well, no reading and writing about them. You know, to, to go back to C.S. Lewis again, there's an, there's an essay actually in the, the book I just quoted, Guy in the Dock, um, called On the Reading of Old Books. I even quote from this in, in, in my book um, where he talks about the significance of reading older books because, one, it does show us some of these things that universally have happened time and again, but then also it kind of gets us out of our moment with our own kind of presuppositions and preoccupations and look back and realize that, you know, we have this long stream of history before us and lest we kind of get out of that, we tend to think that we're the first ever you know, and the only ever, and there haven't been all these before us, and pray God, uh, many after us, um, you know, and sh unless, you know, the, the Lord should return with the kingdom, or we, uh, <laughs> we, we do something uh, to, to right. ourselves, um, but, but reading old books, uh, he has a great line in that essay, he says, it's not that they're superior to the future books, but we just don't have access to the future books. You know, we, right. we can't we can't access those. So we've got to if we want to get out of the the current moment. We need to go back to the old books. Um, but I've handed people books that they were completely unfamiliar with that were 60, 70, 80 years old, and literally when we get back together, their jaws drop. They were like, "I can't believe this! How did I never hear of this book?" You know? Yeah. yeah. Of course, the same reaction I had, I think, when I. Went to two seminaries and got out and thought, I never read Chesterton a single time in seminary. How did how do you get out of seminary, a Christian seminary without reading Chesterton? Yeah, well, that should be required reading uh, mm -hmm. everywhere, along with you know many, many other things. Mm -hmm. But you know, you talked about the filters thing, and I I, I do want to come back to that because I think it is a good way of getting at the way that reading can be helpful in in transcending some of the uh, kind of gridlock that that we otherwise find ourselves in. Um, you know, I was taken at one point uh, by a friend of mine. We were uh, in D.C. This was right around the time that iPhones had um, become somewhat ubiquitous. So I don't know, about 08 maybe. Um, and all of a sudden he pulls out his phone and he's taking a picture of, I don't even remember what it was. I mean, there's a million things to be photographing in D.C. But I remember him taking it and then saying my gracious, it's like I've got this really expensive camera and then I've got these couple filters and he shows me how he's got like two or three filters he can put over it. And I thought, okay, well, yeah. But then as time went on and the iPhones became more and more sophisticated and we kept getting more and more filters that we could put on, I then began to realize that it had deep affinity with the way that I understood the benefit of reading when people would ask because... For me, the really enriching aspect of, of reading, again, the formational piece, along with the building of the reservoir, these go hand in hand, is kind of the enriching of the lens through which we see things. So whereas, used to be you'd have a camera that you took one picture of and then you'd wait forever for Walgreens or whoever, you know, to develop it and then you had it. Then Ultimately, we got to this place with the iPhone where you had a picture, but then you had a couple of different filters. And you're looking at the same thing, but with, you know, slightly different filters 
it's 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 the same image, but now you're able to look at it from slightly different or with in slightly different ways. Well, now we have all these different filters to keep looking at this same thing, but that gives us a different way of seeing that same thing. Um, reading does that. The more we read in a way that we're not conscious of, it is layering uh, the lens through which we're looking at the world. And um, ergo, necessarily, there is a kind of more enriched, nuanced way of seeing whatever one's beholding. Yeah, and, and that back to that affinity with how other people are seeing things. I know it kind of leads back to what we were talking about earlier. There, there is a practical thing where they ask what's practical about it. You gave a couple examples of uh, making some literary allusion in a sermon and then it resonating with somebody in the congregation. Uh, have you found those to be good connections to people when you do that and that happens? I mean... Yeah, I do. And it's like I said, I, I love it when people come up and say, you know, I want to check out that book or I went and got that book after. I, I, I do think that's a, a wonderful thing. And those really do have a way of, if, if utilized properly, being resonances off of the main point of the sermon um, and, and kind of enriching and broadening the point in ways that the point might otherwise fall flat that those are important kind of amplifiers for, for what's being said and done. And sometimes these things happen accidentally. This is the, the thing about the reservoir piece. If, if you read this book, here's a perfect example. There's, while I'm making this very point, I say something about like a match struck in the darkness, there the thing is. Well, I had just referenced Virginia Woolf as an example. Well, that's an image from To the Lighthouse of match struck in the darkness. Um, I didn't consciously do that. It was just there, you know, it's just kind of there in the reservoir to where sometimes these things are underneath what we're saying uh, in ways that we don't even know that's happening. I, and I make this point later in the book when I talk about N.T. Wright. I, I use him as my example of how uh, if we if, if we eat the scriptures as as a couple of different Old Testament prophets, you know, say, um, and Eugene Peterson has a book called, you know, Eat the Scripture, um, which is to say, if, if these are so deeply embedded in us, then yes, there are many times that we are purposely putting Scripture into a sermon or in a prayer or whatever, invoking it knowingly. But there are other times that it's become so deeply embedded that it's just the way in which we express things. And so that doesn't only apply to Scripture. That applies to our reading, that, that images that we take in, that phrasing, that um, language. Some of these things get in, and for every time that we then use it knowingly and overtly, just as many times, because it's in there, it, un, it is underneath something that we're saying in ways that, we're not even aware of. It's muscle memory. I mean, it's, it, 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 you know, if people who get really good at a particular sport, if you ask them to break down what they're doing, it confuses them because it's it's just so, it's been layered upon them for so many years. You mentioned Tom Wright too. There's another, th I think, a little bit of an indictment. You know, Americans don't read as much as other Western cultures do. And Tom Wright, I, we've, I've been trying to get him on the podcast for four years and we, we I told him we've talked enough that we could have already done a podcast thing. But he's yeah, so podcast busy. Podcast of your exchange. Yeah, but I had 
recently we changed emails about something and he noticed a Ram Dass quote at the bottom and he responded. Obviously he understood what he was talking about. He also had an interesting flip on it too, you know, but people, you can tell people who, and, and he's to me one of the, Tom Wright's stuff is one of the most accessible guys that's still, you know, writing that very straight orthodox kind of stuff. I agree. He, but um, that he's obviously super well read. I mean, he knows what he's well, and, and so the reason I use him in that part is because in his, I mean, all across his literature, like you're saying, but, but certainly in his popular level biography on Paul, he talks about how the Apostle Paul was so effective um, as an apostle and, and, and an evangelist uh, in the kind of Mediterranean Hellenistic milieu in which he was living and moving and having his being. Um because he was so steeped not only in, um, in 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 kind of the 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 the, the Talmud and, and the Jewish history and theology and and, and all the above, not only because he'd sat at the feet of Gamaliel, but also because he was so well versed in in Stoic philosophy and in Platonic philosophy. And in all of these different branches of um, of, of of Hellenistic uh, wisdom traditions and, and and philosophical schools of thought, so he was able to translate uh, from the one to the other, and that only happens by reading. And so he's making that point uh, about the significance of of Paul's reading for his. Um, his carrying the gospel into to other contexts. But then what he does in that is he then references scripture in a way that it's that that it seems pretty clear to me he had not in that moment intended to use um, a scriptural wordplay, though he had. And I'm sure after the fact he probably looked and said, Oh, that's from but but it was right. so in there, it's the way he expressed it. <laughs> he looked, I like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well he uh, th- um, you mentioned that that it's oft forgotten. And last week, last week's podcast, I was talking to Amy G. Levine about you know, the, the the missing Judeo part of Judeo Christian, but yeah. the education aspect in, in the Jewish culture today is even still elevated among most other American cultures at the very least. I mean, educate, being educated and well read and all is is a highly prized thing, and that kind of leads to the next thing you mentioned. Uh, that reading of fiction is a path to wisdom. How's that been true for you? Fiction, James K. A. Smith uh, says that that stories and fiction work on us at a subterranean level, and I like that language for expressing it because I think that's a hundred percent right. Um, all great stories um, work on us in ways that we don't know we're being worked on. We are we are learning things about. The human condition um, in ways that we don't know we're being stretched and broadened and informed and moreover that we'll never be able to fully articulate but with each novel we read and here I'm, I'm speaking again I've, I've said there's a place for genre fiction and it's not to say it doesn't happen with genre fiction but I'm talking much more kind of literary character driven less so plot-driven fiction, because what's happening is we're encountering all these different people uh, walking in their shoes, 
living their experience, seeing the world through their eyes, encountering people through their eyes. And we are being formed and enriched by all of that in ways that contribute to, and this goes back to, you know, you talked about just the, the way that reading from a neurological standpoint rewires our brains and has been shown to have um, direct implications for the way that, you know, readers tend to for prize more than others critical thinking and ambiguity and, and, and all kinds of different things. Fiction is one of the things that really does this because it really strengthens our appreciation for just the complication of things, the complexity of things, the ambiguity of things. And it helps us to become more empathetic. Uh, it helps us to become more loving. Um, it helps us to understand others uh, in, in ways that um, we often, because we're just circumscribed by our own lives and our own situatedness, um, we otherwise don't have the access and the opportunity to encounter others in that way. And so fiction does all of that in a deeper way uh, than even nonfiction can do it because it's important to read about things happening in the world. Uh, this, these are both and. Um, but for reading theory on and stats on things happening in the world and being persuaded by that, a whole deeper level is to then walk through the shoes of others um, uh, who are uh, representative of what we might be reading uh, in, in something that's a nonfiction context. Well, there once was a, an actual, you know, much larger place for news analysis. People understood it was uh, you know, an analysis of what, not ABCD, but here's what A means to B and why B and C are connected and why this matters to you. Well, one of the things that I think has been devalued or if not devalued that has lost its place because there's so much opportunity for for folks to to express their own analysis um through the internet which is a game yeah it, is, um, it has shifted certainly i mean you, like you and i've talked in the past uh off mic about um you read um New Yorker writers covering the Second World War. Yeah, that was an analysis that did not have a lot of editorial commentary and didn't need it because they realized the story was dramatic enough. You didn't need. Yeah, I, you know, I think I think that what 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 has happened though is that while more voices have been amplified to be able to provide analysis, which is a gain, it has then caused the rest of us uh, who are not pundits and and don't purport to be pundits to be spoon fed analysis and prevent us from feeling like we didn't need to go do any of that heavy lifting for ourselves. And to be fair, a lot of stuff is broadcast stuff. It's not, I mean, it's television and stuff. It's not as much literary. I mean, there is an element to it, but most of it is just the 24-hour news cycle stuff. It's not, it's, not, it's yeah. away from reading like we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, and you go back to that Yale study you cited that was yeah. about long-form reading. Right. And that's significant. Is, is When we talk about long-form reading, we even need to think about what does that even mean right now? Because, you know, the studies now show that most people, we think we've read something if we've, you know, digested the bullet points, right. you know, that, that have been been put up at the top of an article. Right. Um, that's not reading, you know, and even going and reading, you know, a, an 800, 1,000 word, you know, piece on something. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's beginning to read, but that doesn't mean to have been fully read on whatever the topic at hand is. Well, 
there are going to be those who are already in your tribe that read this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what do you tell the people who are trying to figure it out? Where would you tell them to start? Are there books you guide people to initially? Are there certain things you say, you try starting here? It's a wonderful question. And I really do hope that there will be some folks that come to this book that don't already think of themselves as regular readers, but by virtue of the book are inspired to at least give it a try. And carving out an hour as a minister in, in um, one's day, I think is a really good place to start. And that can be hard at first, maybe even just a couple days a week trying to do that. Meanwhile, for anybody that's listening to this that's not a minister, I think this is every bit as applicable to folks that aren't ministers too. And it might not uh, map as easily on to your work schedule to carve out an hour. But any time spent, you know, in the morning, in the evening, whenever dedicated to trying to just build up this reading muscle. It doesn't have to be an hour. Start out, you know, with 30 minutes. Um, but the act of doing it and trusting that maybe there really is something to that this is forming me and enriching the way that, that I'm reading and seeing things. Are there books, though, you push right. them? Right. Yeah, 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 say that there, there aren't because for... For everything that has worked for me or has worked for another, it doesn't necessarily work for someone else. One of the right. things I say in the book is that, and nobody loves a, a, a to-read list more than I do. I love right. to talk to people. What are your favorite five books? You right. know, it's my favorite question to ask somebody. But just because they're my favorite five or just because they've worked for me doesn't mm -hmm. mean they're going to be the same for you. I, I really think there's something mysterious at play in how we go about reading. Right. Uh, that The books kind of encounter us when when we need to encounter them. Um so I don't have a ready-at-hand list of here, start here, and go from here. Really, for me, the, the encouragement is just start. Find something uh, that, that you're interested in and let that kind of be the springboard. I mean, yes, I have favorite novels. Uh, again, folks have heard me say that I don't turn my nose up at genre fiction. You mm -hmm. know, I think reading a John Grisham novel is a wonderful place to begin this kind of thing. Um, well, I mean, and you take a, uh, you're talking about character driven, there are probably few writers alive today who write better character fiction than Stephen King. Well, you know, Stephen King's one of those great examples you gave of someone jumps who, out of the, yeah, yeah. That, 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 that certainly transcends the, the genre. And yet he's painted into that, you know, again, people, I think there is that a little bit of a temptation, particularly pastors who are already educated to feel funny about jumping into popular fiction rather than, oh, maybe I really need to go get, don't start with Faulkner, okay? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Start with Fitzgerald if you want to do that, though, or, you know. Well, all, I mean, all of those. I mean, I, Steinbeck, I love, I love very that. accessible. I mean, I love all, all of those. I mean, Steinbeck's a great example. He's very you know? accessible and people. Um, I, I've recommended folks go reread Grapes of Wrath, most of whom have not reread it since high school. Right. And that is a book. If then. That, yeah, well, and, if then, yeah. at least the Cliff's Notes, right? Um, that, that, that's a great book, but it, it's not just fiction. It doesn't have to just be fiction. I hope, oh, oh what a, what a wonderful, uh, takeaway it would be. What a wonderful sense of validation it would be for me if I got a note from somebody that said, hey, after reading this book, you know, I went and picked up some fiction and, you know, found myself really enjoying that. Nothing would make me happier than that, but it doesn't have to be fiction, you know. <laughs> Pick up poetry. You know, go read short stories. Are short stories are a great example, and they're getting harder to find. Fewer you know, people are writing short stories these days. They are, and you know, and and I oftentimes will recommend somebody go read a Flannery O'Connor short story. Oh yeah, absolutely. And for every person that then thanks me for that, they say, "Well, I don't even know what that was about." And I say, well, "That's fine." Right. You know that that's 
that that's part of the thing. But you've been thinking about it, haven't you? Mm -hmm. You know, and that's one of the real beauties of of someone like a Flannery O'Connor. Hand him Flannery O'Connor in one hand, and either put Updike or Cheever in the other hand. Oh they my get, They get they get this this wild. Um, but you mentioned though nonfiction. I, I have. I understand it's a challenge because the books are long, but Robert Caro's books you touched on, yeah. I, have, I don't know that I've ever enjoyed 4,000 pages on one person's life. If you had told me I would read 4,000 pages on LBJ and yeah. enjoy every minute, it's just crazy how well-written and how compelling those books are. It also gives you not only a, the reading thing, but an understanding of history in a way. All of those uh, Sam Tanhouse's book on Whitaker Chambers is the same thing. It may be I haven't as, read that. that it, it may be as the best political biography in one volume I've ever read. It's yeah, just no, crazy. Read that, but, but, yeah, I mean, a master. Oh yeah, and I mean, we don't get. I, I could start the, the fan club here. How much <laughs> that guy did to it. Um, let's see here. Uh, I, one thing you did touch on that I wanted to continue to talk about a little bit is the role of curiosity. I, I really, the older I get, the more I believe the intellect, curiosity may be the highest form of intellect. I mean, as you get older and you see people, because you get people who are experts at some things that just shut down there, you know? But you, you run into people who is, I've run into a number of people who are even a generation beyond me, they're all dying out now, but that somewhere made a decision in their 60s or 70s. I'm really curious, you know, I never felt, yeah. I had the, you know, I never felt I had needed permission to be curious. Now I'm curious about things. It's very interesting to watch that transformation in people. Apostle Paul says that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, you know, and I, I think that's another way of saying that humility is the necessary disposition for for encountering the world in general, but certainly for, for, for trying to learn and understand, um, because it can be seductive to, to take in, you know, some heading information or you know, read a Faulkner novel and, and then be able to, you know, kind of just passingly in conversation, you know, I just finished off The Unvanquished, you know, for the second time, or, you know, uh, oh, yeah, have you read Absalom, Absalom lately? I, but that, that's the wrong way to think about it. Um, and, and if one comes at reading from that place of humility, I think that is, that's an, that's just another way of saying, coming at it with sincere curiosity. And that's that has to be the vantage, I believe, for for really approaching being being a reader and learner. The last, like you said, the last probably third of the book is aimed at pastors. And one of the things I just wanted to touch on, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but you talked about notating. Mm -hmm. I also noticed you said you don't use a Kindle, which I have found by far the easiest way to mark up and take notes. I mean, you go back and your notes are organized and it's, they're right there page by page, which you've You've yeah. marked and written in. It's uh... well, and I note there. I have a a little um, notation there, though, that I think everything I you say did. is is about marking up a book. You know, a physical book is is directly transferable to somebody reading on a Kindle or Nook or any other type of <coughs> reading device. But a lot of readers don't mark up. I mean, to be fair, there, are, there are people who are, well, I don't. There, I know people who are very literate and can remember massive amounts that they've never written in a single novel they've read. I, mean, I do too. Yeah. And when I say too many don't, I, I think it. I, I say that simply because I think there is kind of a tacit assumption that once we've finished formal education, that's that's what the marking up of books was for. For pastors, particularly. I mean, you got to go back and pull out something that you you know. Yeah, yeah, but I think you know this is so far transcends pastors. You know, I think that everyone does well to no matter what he or she is reading 
to have a pencil in hand to, to make notations. And in the book, I give what my system is. Everybody can have a different system, but I do think it's important to have kind of not only the pencil in hand, but a bit of a philosophy for how we're going about marking up the books. Um, because one of the things that, that strikes me, even as someone who has written a book about this, and every now and again, I'll be somewhere and I've picked up a book and I don't have my pencil in hand and I don't have one nearby or I'm comfortable and I think, well, I'll just mark it later, you know, and I'll read and I'll dog ear, you know, and I'll kind of keep going. Um, and I'll have thought, you know, when, when the thing strikes me, I'll think, oh my gosh, yes, how, what a jewel is this? I won't forget this. And then I'll keep reading. And then, you know, when I'll go back, I'm like, now what was that thing? Because in that moment we think, oh, I won't possibly forget the impact of that sentence or whatever just had. But we do. Um, and so it's important to flag those things and possibly even notate what it is that was significant about that to us. Because when we go back after the fact, once we finish that particular day's reading or that book, we get to revisit that. And in many cases, we've already forgotten what was significant to us. But then you know, take that several years down the line, go and pull that book off the shelf. And what we're blessed by is what we did there when we went and underlined or marked or put, you know, a little annotation of some sort. I mean, you know, you and I are having this conversation in my office. You pull any of the books off of here, you open it up, they're most likely going to be notations in there. Um, I don't remember. Those aren't loaners either at that point. Unless you get... that, that, that's, well, yes, that's I'll not... buy you another copy, but you're not taking this one. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've lost a lot of books I've marked up over the years. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loath to share books. Um, as somebody who wants everyone to read, I'm really bad about then sharing. Well, we have a nice books. library here. Yeah, well, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm possessive of and territorial of them because also, I never know when I'm going to need just them This is an aside, and it's not really an aside, but... Um, if if you are looking for books, you can go on eBay and for three to five dollars shipped, you can get almost any book you ever want. That's right. It's incredible. You buy used books, they're going cheaper than they've ever gone now. I mean, I've never seen books this cheap. And I have to be careful because I can go on and order ten books. You know, I can too. And they'll buy three, we'll give you two free. Well, I'll get two more while I'm ordering. But I mean, books are accessible. And the library, we've got a good library system here. And um, if you do have a you know portable reader, even your phone. I encourage people to keep a paperback or something on their Kindle on their phone if you get stopped in traffic somewhere. You're not dead with it. You know, if you get in a restaurant and your friend doesn't show up, you've got something to read rather than just flipping through. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. You know, when you talk, we talked about Stephen King a minute ago. I mean, he wrote, you know, one of one of the essential books on being a writer, you know, his book yeah. on writing. And in that book, he talks about this very thing, you know, that, uh, you know, says if you want to be a writer, you know, you got to have a book with you everywhere you go. Right. You stand in line in the supermarket, wherever, have a book. Well, I think that, I think we do well to do that just as human beings. I yeah. really do. To, to, to have a book at hand, we never know when there's going to be a few extra spare minutes. Um, pick it up, read. Uh, it's enriching in ways that just opening up our phone and pushing, you know, the, the Facebook app or Instagram app or whatever. Um, and that has a place. I, you know, Same but, as keeping paper and, paper and pencil with you. What Anne Lamott said, that yeah, God will give right. somebody else your ideas. And, well, and she has one of the other essential books on Traveling Mercies is probably one of the best spiritual biographies in the modern era, I would think. It's, so, but Bird King, by Bird? Or, no, I'm talking about well, Traveling I mean, Mercies. Oh, yeah, but travel, too, yeah. I'm just talking about a, 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 a spiritual biography. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, 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 yeah. But King, you mentioned King. I think King also has one of the most, uh, and, and it's not, 
a difficult read, but his book Needful Things is probably one of the best spiritual books. I never in read Needful Things. It it essentially is about people who they, there's something they want, but when they get it, they can't share it. They're afraid somebody's going to take it. Yeah. And it's very like interesting. Like me with my books. Yeah, like you with your books, your <laughs> Needful Things books. Well, let's let's just kind of wrap it up. Um, Tell people and give them, let's give them the thirty seconds. How do, how, how can a pastor or, or somebody who's listening to this is busy find time to read? It's about making it a part of the calendar. This is a Eugene Peterson uh, uh, trick and one that I think is critical. Uh, first one has to be persuaded by the argument that reading is more formational than it is informational. It is informational, but it's more formational. So that's part one. Part two then is to believe that that formative aspect of reading really does make it a vocational responsibility instead of just a, a luxury. If if someone uh, hears that and is persuaded enough by that and thinks there might be something to that I want to try, at that juncture then it's about letting the calendar be your friend um, and carving out an hour if possible. That's what I, that's what I prescribe is what I do. 30 minutes if, if that's all that's possible. But don't just say, I'm going to try to fit it in in the day. It's about safeguarding that time in the calendar and then allowing yourself to not feel guilty about it by saying, this is a pastoral visit that I'm having, not just a time where I'm sitting reading a book. And uh, we, we touched on this before. Um, where I, I know it's, I, I'm pushing you on this, but where to start? Where, just give some titles if somebody hasn't read where to give it, give it a start that would be accessible and would get somebody engaged quickly. And Yeah, well, so you mentioned Anne Lamott. Anne Lamott and Donald Miller were uh, in roads for me. That doesn't mean that they're the ones that I necessarily recommend. But don't watch that movie. Like His the, movie's terrible. That movie's terrible. The movie Blue Like Jazz. Yeah. Um, so, um, but that was kind of the inroad back into me. And then I read Life of Pi around that time, The Time Traveler's Wife. Um, but I think if I'm just in a vacuum, one thing that I've encouraged people to do is go read, reread The Lion, the Witch, of the Wardrobe again. Um, a lot of folks think that's just a children's story. It's the book that made me fall in love with reading. I think the Chronicles of Narnia are a good place because um, there, there are so many different levels at which to read that. Um, I think that um, we mentioned John Knowles. Um, a separate piece might be a good place to, to begin um, if we're talking about fiction. Um, I don't a lot of dick A lot of Dickens stuff is pretty sexual. Yeah, I, I, I think one has to already be back in the groove of reading before I recommend going right to a, a Dickens. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, Dostoevsky is who I always recommend to, to pastors who have been doing some reading and are thinking right. about, you know, wanting to branch into fiction. Um, but that's not really the, the starting place, I don't think. Not because you have to be so enlightened, or it just it's it's it it's a slower burn, you mm -hmm. know, and it's chewier and um, true. Twentieth uh, century short story collections, short story collections, as you mentioned earlier, is a great entree into authors and stuff. That's right. And Neil Planiga, who wrote a book called Reading for Preaching, who's 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 an authority on these things, he he often recommends people do short stories. And um, here here's a good answer. Um, Elizabeth Strout, Olive Kitteridge, I think is one of the best books of the last 15 years. And some short stories based well, on that too. Yeah, well, so really, it's a novel that, yeah. you know, really is a series of short it is. stories. Yeah. Um, 
it's a really good one because it's it's sophisticated, but it's also really engaging. It is. Donna Tartt's books are. Um, I, I think that, that you can't go wrong with a Donna Tartt book. Some of her characters, though, for people getting started, are, are not very... I mean, I mean, Donna Tartt? Yeah, I mean... That's may, I mean, maybe, maybe. When you think but, about Goldfinch or something, there's nobody in there you like. I mean, yeah, you're not rooting for anybody in that book. No, that's, but the reason <laughs> that she comes to mind right after I say Elizabeth Strout, yeah. and, you know, I'm just beginning the publicity stuff on this, so you're helping me with this, because I really do need to have an answer for this, because even though my answer is... My answer is, I don't want to give you an answer. Right. I still need to be able to give an answer. Well, yeah, because if you were asking somebody, you you wouldn't want them to run around. You know, say, just give me some ideas. You yeah, don't have to no, say, I read mean, this. Just say, here. Yeah, no, that, it's, it's completely fair. But the reason that, that Donna Tart comes to mind right after Elizabeth Strout is there, there are some authors that have such verbal energy to their writing. Mm -hmm. that their, their stuff is just so compulsively readable right. that it's in some senses, almost like reading genre fiction because sure. the pages turn so easily. Right. And that's such a gift because a lot of the writers that I love, that's not necessarily the truth about their books. I mean, it, right. it, it can be a slog and the payoff is huge, but it's not compulsively readable. Elizabeth Strout, in my opinion, is compulsively readable. Also, if you're sitting across the table from yeah. somebody that you know, you know they like Westerns, you can say, okay, you'd be interested in this. Maybe even Mickey Splain's Western stuff that almost nobody's read. Or, or um, um, you know, people who, uh, there, there is, if you know the person, there is something you can pretty much, that, well, that, a little that, easier. Yeah, it, it is. It's, I mean, it, it is contextual. But, you know, since we're doing this in a vacuum to right. whoever the, the people listening happen to be I, I do think that a good first novel for that uh is is elizabeth strout yeah. start with olive kitteridge if you're doing if you're doing fiction and finally let's circle back around to, you got any suggestions for how they can read with, with what we talked about a curious mind how to keep an open mind while you're reading i do and let me say i gave that for fiction nonfiction. i might say jonathan heights the righteous mind i think that's a really important book no matter who one is i think it's got a lot of explanatory value uh, for the moment we're in, and it's 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 buttressed by some really really deep. Um, 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 it's it's just it's a very informed um, piece of writing. So, Olive Kitteridge and, and and the Righteous Mind for fiction and nonfiction. Um, the question again about curiosity. Yeah, how yeah how do you approach something with a curious mind if that's a new concept to you? How would you explain that to? To somebody, I know it's not an easy. No, it's really not. And I think about our boy Chesterton. You know, he talks about how, um, uh, as adults, um, you know, we we talk about we have to make the grass red. You know, and, and telling the story, but he said we don't have to do that for kids because they're already just amazed at the very fact of grass. <laughs> you know, he says, that's in in orthodoxy. I'm paraphrasing, but it's something to that point. I think there's something really to the the admonition of Jesus to become like small children. You know, they're um, not necessarily to become uh, simplistic, but to become simple in the sense of, of of just kind of stepping back and and recognizing how how big it all is and how small we are in in, in relationship to it, and and realizing how little we do know. Um, and, and then consequently then being curious about so much else. And that's why I say, I think humility and curiosity are, 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 are cousins here, you know, the, almost in some ways, two ways of saying the same thing. I really think that 
for one, it's a it's a looking in the mirror and saying when it comes to my intake of of news of literature of of anything am i honestly approaching this with a desire to to know more and be broadened and stretched or do i have kind of an already built-in perspective that i'm just trying to bolster and buttress and that's an easy thing to do i mean it's it's not the right thing but it's an easy thing to do we're all guilty of it you know but I think if we start in the mirror and realize, okay, well, I don't know that I'm engaging the world in general and reading in particular with with enough kind of curiosity and, and openness to, to start trying to do um, a little bit more of that is important. And then to approach reading and life in general with a little bit more generosity of spirit, I think, is important. And I think that the two go hand in hand and are mutually reinforcing. We don't have to necessarily agree with everyone on everything, at least have a charitability of spirit to say, I do want to hear where you're coming from. And here are some things that I can't acknowledge in what you said, even if I don't ultimately agree with your point of view. And reading is maybe one of the few places where you can privately become that more childlike, more humble as you, it may work into the areas, but you know, you, you can read a book and enjoy it and have fun. And, and it's, you don't have to, Nobody's watching you. Nobody's judging you. You know, you're, it's a place where you really take yourself to a different place. No, that's absolutely right. And I just, I just had that experience back to back with um, reading uh, two novels by the writer Richard Powers. He won the Pulitzer a couple of years ago for a book called The Overstory, which to read that and realize just it's it's a book about trees, but to realize the complexity and the immensity and the long, long, long history of of something we take for granted, trees. I, there's, a, there's a blurb on the book, I'm pretty sure it was, it was President Obama who said it, said something about, you know, I, I've not been able to look at trees the same way since. Well, I haven't either. I mean, that's it's been, you know, probably six months since I read that book. I have a deeper wonder and appreciation for trees. And then soon thereafter, his, his newest book had come out, Bewilderment, which I didn't like nearly as much. Um, but yet, it really gave a, a greater sense of perspective to the reader for just how expansive the known universe is, um, which is something that we don't, I don't think is a generalization for people pay enough attention and respect to, but certainly not as Christians. We don't, and we need to. Yeah. Um, so yes, I think reading is one of those things that continues to humble us if we come at come at it with the right spirit. Reminds us we don't have everything figured out. Yeah, we need we, we need constant reminding of that. Books available from Amazon, other bookstores and everything? Yes, books are available uh, from um, anywhere books are sold. Um, uh, um, so please, uh, I would I would love, love for you to give the book a read and would love to hear from you if you do read it because, um, as I say in the postscript, is... As, as readers, we pine for other people to love reading the way we do. And there's nothing that, that brings more joy than to encounter another reader and to get to talk about books, which is one of the reasons you and I struck up such a quick yeah, friendship. Yeah, that is absolutely true. You find somebody else in that tribe that, you know, you started reading. And, and it's, you have to, at least for me, uh, you know, if somebody knocks out multiple books in a week, just I've been reading since before I started school. And it's hard for me to imagine somebody not, 
enjoying that, you know. Yeah. But we do have, like I said, we do have a good library here, and they'll find things for you, and they have audiobooks. And I suggest audiobooks to some of my friends who are just trying to get back into it as well to say, look, you know, almost any of the great works of literature are available for free on audio, and listen to it, and you kind of get into the rhythm yeah. of the story and it makes you want to read. I, I encourage everyone to do that.